Um, all right, so, so here's the thing. As we, as we keep going in our series today, we are smack dab in the middle of Hebrews. And we, uh, actually, I think this is week six, as we've been working through this book. And by now, if you've been tracking with us, you've seen um, that the whole point of Hebrews is the author making sure that Israel, the nation of Israel, the Jews, that they know that Jesus is better. Right? He's the better prophet. He's the better priest. He brings a better covenant. Right? He brings a more permanent covenant. Everything is better because of Jesus. And while the Jews maybe wouldn't necessarily have understood that, the author has gone to great lengths to point out to them even that not just is it all about Jesus, but going backwards, that all of the Old Testament, from, from Genesis on, all of it was always pointing to the coming of Jesus and the fact that he was going to make everything better. We know that the Old Covenant was good, but it, but it was never going to be perfect. Right? That's what the author says in chapter 8. Let's just jump right in there. If you've got your Bibles open up, we're going to be in 8 and 9 today. But we'll start here. Oh, by the way, as you're opening your Bibles, let me say this. Happy Mergerversary. Um, there were cupcakes on your way in. They'll be there on the way out too. We ordered cupcakes before we knew there was a virus. So there's a lot of cupcakes. Um, so if you had one on the way in, that's awesome. Eat one on the way out also. Take one home. Enjoy it later. Uh, but we have existed as Blessed Hope Community Church uh, for one year this Sunday. Um, before that, Blessed Hope and Revolution existed separately, and God, over the course of, of a good chunk of time, called our leadership together and called us together as a church. And, and so we officially uh, merged last March, and we had our inaugural kickoff Sunday um, on this Sunday a year ago. So we are just so excited about what God's done in bringing our churches together and uh, what he's accomplishing through Blessed Hope Community Church. Listen, um, and you should have practiced for this last week. We've seen lives changed. Amen. Thank you. We've seen people come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. We've seen people baptized. We've seen inroads into the community through outreach. We have been able to accomplish quite a bit through God's blessing and the merger of our two churches. And so we're excited to celebrate our anniversary with cupcakes. So eat some and eat some more. All right, back to Hebrews 8, starting in verse 6. But now, Jesus, our high priest, we covered that last week, right? That Jesus is our better high priest. That Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood, for he is the one who mediates for us a better covenant with God based on better promises. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. So the author, uh, the author is telling us right off the bat, here's what you need to know, right? Like, Jesus ushers in a new covenant because the old covenant had faults. It was flawed. It wasn't as good as God wanted it to be in finality, right? It, it, here's the thing with the old covenant. It wasn't false, but it wasn't the fullness of truth either, right? It was a gift. The old covenant was a gift of God's grace, but it wasn't the fullness of God's grace. It was a partial picture. It was always meant to be temporary. Here's what it's like. 
It's like that spare tire. Any of you ever had to drive around with one of those on your car? It probably has a better word, but my parents always used to call it a donut. Is that what you got, a donut? Okay, so I remember the first, and, uh, the first time I had to put a donut on my car, um, I, it was in high school, I was 16, just got my license, I was driving around with my girlfriend at the time, and uh, we got a flat tire, and I'd never changed a tire. I know what you're thinking, he was like 16, he's never changed a tire. I grew up in the city. You farm guys, you were changing tires when you were four, right? <laughs> but we just called AAA. We still just call AAA because of this story. Get the tire out of the trunk, jack the car up. I figured out how to do all of that, right? Got the old tire off, got the, the donut, and was like, I know how this works. And I put it on and put the lug nuts on. I put it on backwards. <laughs> and it worked. Got it to the place where, where they were trying to, to, you know, gonna patch the other tire and fix it up for us. And, and, and the guy literally laughed. And then made some comment about how we were lucky to make it. Because it turns out I put it on backwards. And he said, here, let me show you how this works. And he took it off. And he turned it around. And he put it back on. And that was the time I realized I should not be changing tires. That's not in my wheelhouse. But, but a, a, a donut is a temporary measure. It's not meant to be permanent. It's something that's a stopgap at best. It's, it's the best we have in the moment to get us through. That's what the donut is, right? You're out driving, you get a flat, you don't want to have to just leave the car, so you're able to put the spare tire on the donut so you can get through. But it's never meant to be permanent. That's like the old covenant. The old covenant was truth. It was a gift of God's grace, but it wasn't the fullness of God's grace. And that's what the author is telling us way back here in 6 and 7. He says, if the first one had been faultless, there wouldn't have been need for a second one. But it was with faults. It wasn't full. It wasn't complete. And so therefore, a second covenant was needed to replace it. And so what we're going to do today in chapters 9 and the rest of 8 is, is we're going to see why the old covenant had faults. We're going to see what was wrong. And again, when I say wrong, I don't mean that God built it wrong. But what I mean is that, that God built it intentionally incomplete. It's what we called earlier in, in week one of this series, part of the progressive revelation of God. He gave us a little bit at a time. And that little bit at a time was always pointing towards Jesus, Right? But the Old Covenant was this ritualistic priesthood. And it served its purpose, but it was never meant to endure. It was like that spare tire. It serves its purpose, but it's never meant to endure. It was always destined to be replaced. Let's read. I'm going to read you the first seven verses of Hebrews 9 if you want to follow along on the screen or open up your word. But the first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship and a place of worship here on earth. There were two rooms in that tabernacle. In the first room was a lampstand, a table, sacred loaves of bread on the table. This room was called the holy place. There was a curtain, and behind the curtain was the second room called the most holy place. In that room were a gold incense altar and a wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered with gold on all sides. Inside the ark were a gold jar containing manna, Aaron's staff that sprouted leaves, and the stone tablets of the covenant— Above the ark were the cherubim of divine glory, whose wings stretched out over the ark's cover. 
the place of atonement, but we cannot explain these things in detail now. When these things were all in place, the priests regularly entered the first room as they performed their religious duties, but only the high priest entered the most holy place and only once a year, and he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins of people, uh, the sins the people had committed in ignorance. All right, and so if you've been tracking with the series, a lot of that is review, right? Because we've talked about these old regulations for worship already, and, and this is a review of that with more detail thrown in. Uh, and so we'll move through it pretty quickly, but there's a couple things I want you to know. First of all is this, the tabernacle that they're talking about. The tabernacle was not just a tent. The tabernacle was not just a makeshift tent that Israel threw together so that they could go in it and have a church service. And I think sometimes when we think tabernacle, we just think, oh, it's this thing we threw up in the wilderness so that we could have church and we could worship God. And then when it was time to move, we just packed it all up and put it together and went. No, no, this, this was a big deal, right? The tabernacle was actually a picture of where God dwells in heaven, is a picture of that with men. And so what God says is, I, when I meet with men, I will meet with them in the tabernacle, which is a physical representation of this spiritual reality in heaven. It was a big deal. And God cared about the tabernacle and its construction, um, like, a lot. Ask me how much. That's a great question. Um, here's how much he cared about it. When God created the known universe, from nothing he creates the entire universe and everything in it and the planet and everything in it and people and animals and everything. When God creates all of that, he devotes two, two chapters, Genesis 1, Genesis 2. When God gives instruction for the tabernacle, he devotes some 40 chapters of Scripture specifically Exodus 25 through 40, which is why when you read Exodus 25 through 40, you're like, man, that's long. Because it is. There's a lot of things in there about cubits and sizes and dimensions and whatever else. And you're like, why does this matter? Well, it matters because that's God's dwelling place. It's a picture of where he dwells in heaven, now recreated specifically to his design with men. It matters. Two verses about the creation of the entire universe. Forty verses about the construction and the detail of the tabernacle. It matters. God knew that this was how he was going to meet with mankind, and this mattered. And so um, he gives these instructions. And so let's walk through it just a little bit here. So uh, in the tabernacle, inside the structure were two rooms um, and when you first walked in, the, the scripture doesn't mention this, but we know it from Exodus, there's an outer court. So there's three parts to it. There's the outer court, there's um, the inner room, which is the holy place, and then the inner inner room, which is the most holy place, what we would call the holy of holy. So let's walk through that a little bit. Um, the outer court, the outer court um, was open to all priests and Levites. So just as a little history lesson here, um, all priests were actually from the tribe of Levi. Right? Remember, uh, there were 12 tribes of Israel, 
right? The 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, and those um, sons each became the head of a tribe, and, and one of them was Levi, and that tribe became known as the Levites. And God set the Levites apart as the ones who would minister to him and would serve him at the tabernacle and later at the temple. And out of the tribe of Levi came the priestly order, right? So if you were going to be a priest, you had to come from the tribe of Levi. Some Levites were priests. Some just served at the tabernacle. They were the helpers of the priests, okay? So outside of the tabernacle, all of Israel was. Going into the tabernacle in the outer court, only people from the tribe of Levi could go. Only priests and Levites, it was restrictive. And in the outer court was a bronze altar. It was actually made of wood, and it was covered with bronze. And on top of the bronze altar was a bronze grate, and the coals would go underneath, and the sacrifices would go on top of the grate. And there were actually four horns um, at each corner of the altar, and the horns were there so that you could securely tie the sacrifice so that when the sacrifice was slaughtered, it was there. It couldn't escape. And then the sacrifice was made on the altar. There was also a bronze basin so that uh, the priests and Levites could clean after the bloody work. That was the outer court. That's where you would, to the entrance of that, is where you would take your sacrifice to make atonement with God. Inside the outer court, into the first room, would be the holy place. Now, you'll notice that, that Levites and priests were allowed in the courtyard, but only priests are allowed in the holy place. We're getting more restrictive. All of Israel is outside. In the courtyard, it's just Levites and priests, and in the holy place, it's just priests. And in the holy place, there's three articles. There's a solid gold lampstand. Right? Seven branches filled with pure olive oil. There's a gold table. It's actually, again, it's wood, but it's covered in gold, and it holds the sacred bread. The sacred bread are the 12 loaves of bread, one for each of the tribes of Israel. What would happen is, um, at the beginning of the week, the 12 loaves of sacred bread would be placed on the gold table in the holy place. At the end of the week, the priests would eat the bread, only the priests. And then the next week, seven or 12 more loaves would be placed on the table. And then there was the altar of incense, also made of gold, that held burning coals from the outer courtyard. And you'll notice the progression too. Not only have we gotten more restrictive, but we've gotten more valuable. We've moved from bronze to gold now in the holy place. And then if you keep going into the tabernacle, through the outer courtyard, into the holy place, then there is a veil, a thick curtain that lets no light or vision past it. I mean, this is a big curtain. And through that curtain is what we would call the most holy place or the holy of holies. God instructed it be exactly 15 cubic feet. And in the holy of holies, only the high priest is allowed and only one time a year on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement after he makes a sacrifice for his own sin and then makes sacrifice um, for the sins of Israel. Inside the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. Right? Indiana Jones? Anybody? 
like the original Indiana Jones before they got weird, right? They were searching for the Ark of the Covenant. It's a real thing. It exists in Israel's history. I don't think it will melt your face off, but I can't promise you because I've never looked directly at it. But it's the Ark of the Covenant, and inside the Ark are a couple of valuable things, right? Like people are like, I wonder what's in the Ark. We know what's in the Ark of the Covenant. Three things, right? First thing is there is a golden jar that's full of manna. Remember when Israel wandered in the wilderness, God miraculously brought manna from heaven. It basically rained food, right? It's where Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs came from, except it didn't rain spaghetti. It rained manna. Every morning when they got up, they would go out and they would gather manna and they would have enough to eat and God would provide for them the next day, the entirety of their wandering, right? And so what happened is, as a picture of God's faithfulness and his goodness and his care for the people, he instructed them, save some in the jar to place in the ark as a reminder of what God did for you. Also in the ark is Aaron's staff. Aaron's staff, which was made of wood that he had. It was just a wood staff, dead wood that he carried around with him when when they were wandering uh, and when they left Egypt in the Exodus. But as a show of his power, God caused this staff of dead wood to bud, showing that he is powerful. That staff is also in the ark. And then finally, it's the stone tablets of the covenant that God gave to Moses um, on Mount Sinai after they left Egypt. Moses cut them from the rock himself, and then God himself carved them. And those are in the ark. And then when the lid is on the ark, it creates this mercy seat. And it has these cherubim carved out of pure gold that stretch over top of the ark. And, And what we know from Exodus 25 is that that's where God will meet with Here's what he says in Exodus 25. I will meet with you there and talk to you from above the atonement cover between the gold cherubim that hover over the Ark of the Covenant. For there I will give you my commands for the people of Israel. Tabernacle is a big deal. It was ritualistic. It was religious. And it was temporary. Because In the same text that we read about all of these things with the tabernacle, here's what we read. By these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed that the entrance to the most holy place was not freely open. Why wasn't it freely open? Because not everybody could go. You could only even enter the outer courtyard if you were from the right tribe. If you were in a priestly role, you could only enter the the holy place getting closer to God's presence if you were a priest, and you could only enter the most holy place where God dwells with men once a year if you were the one special guy. The place, the way wasn't freely open. So therefore, this old covenant had faults. Not only that, but the gifts and sacrifice that the priest offers are not able to cleanse the conscience. The old system deals only with food and drink and the various cleansing ceremonies, physical regulations, right? So, so not only, right, not only was it not a freely open way for men to God, but not only that, but it was limited in how it could help. It offered limited atonement, right? It could cover your sin, but it couldn't really forgive your sin. Your sin never really went away. It was just covered. 
And then finally, we, we read here that not only that, but it was always destined to be temporary. It was in effect only until a better system could be established. And the better system, we know, is Jesus. It was always supposed to be Jesus. All of the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. The problem is, the Jews didn't know it. They didn't understand it. So when Jesus came, instead of celebrating the Messiah that had finally come to usher in the new covenant, they rejected And when Peter and Paul and the apostles walked around and the author of Hebrews and they shared this truth about Jesus, instead of flocking to it and celebrating it, many Jews rejected it as blasphemy and heresy because they didn't understand that their own scriptures were always pointing to this moment. They didn't get it. And they still don't today. But the reality is this. It was always all about Jesus. Remember um, after the resurrection, when Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus, right? Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus, and, and he's walking with two disciples that don't recognize him. He doesn't allow them to recognize him, and they're walking along, and the disciples are sad. And Jesus says, hey, this is my translation, why are you sad? And Jesus says, well, or Jesus, no, um, the disciples say, well, we're sad because Jesus died right? Are you living under a rock? We were following this guy. We thought he was the Messiah. He died. He's buried in the grave. And obviously we were wrong and we don't know what to do now. What does it all mean? Then there were some people that say they saw him and we don't even know what to believe. And so what happens is the word tells us that on this seven mile walk, Jesus took the time to open up the scriptures of the Old Testament to show those two men how from the Old Testament, this was always what was predicted and this was always what was supposed to happen. And this isn't a new thing, but it's the fulfillment of an old thing. An old promise that God had made was now come to fruition in the person of Jesus Christ. And you remember what they said when he departs from them. They say, didn't our hearts burn within us? as he opened up the scriptures, because inherently then, as as they were taught by Jesus what it was supposed to be and that it always pointed to him, all of a sudden it made sense in a way that it never had. They said, didn't our hearts burn within us? And one of the things that he invariably explained to them that that, that we know he shared with them was this passage from Jeremiah, and it's what the author of Hebrews shares in in, in Hebrews 8. It's, It's words from Jeremiah about this new covenant that's coming that were written 650 years before Jesus came. This is why they should have known. 650 years before Jesus came, this is what the prophet Jeremiah wrote about this new covenant that was coming. If you're you're looking in your Bibles, it's chapter 8, and it starts in verse 8. But when God found fault with the people, he said this, quoting Jeremiah, The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the old the old one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. They did not remain faithful to my covenant, so I turned my back on them, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day. I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, and I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. Jeremiah 
650 years before Jesus is already telling the Jews, hey, there is a time coming when this old covenant, this Mosaic covenant, this thing that you're participating in, when it is going to pass away because it's not perfect and it's not the fullness of God's grace to you. There's something better coming and that better is Jesus. And so we're going to walk through that one at a time. There's six points about why the better covenant or why the new covenant is the better covenant. We're going to look at them here real quick. In verse eight, when God found fault with the people, he said, the day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. So, so one of the things that we know is that God has said from then, I'm making a new covenant. The day is coming. And here's what you need to know about that. He's making that new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. Not with me and you. Not with America. Not with Matt. But he makes this covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. By the way, Israel and Judah history lesson, just real quick. Um, They are what we would understand as the Israelites. Remember way back when Solomon was king, right? David was king and he unified the 12 tribes. His son Solomon became king and did stupid, right? Got married to a bunch of women, had a bunch of concubines, and to keep them all happy, he let them have their own um, gods and temples and things to their fake gods and their idols and um, basically their satanic rituals. And, And so when that happened, right, God said, I am going to punish you by taking the nation away from you. But because I promised David that I would always leave a man on the throne from his family, the Davidic line. God spared the lower two nations and kept them in David's line, right? We call that Judah. That's the line of David in the nation of Judah, right? The 10 northern tribes became known as Israel, and they continued um, going their own way, okay? So we think of Israel as the 12 tribes Right? But really, after Solomon, they were two different nations, the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. Ten tribes in the nation of Israel, the two southern tribes made the, the nation of Judah. None of that really matters except to say, in this context, what God is saying is, I'm going to make a new covenant with everybody. I'm going to restore Israel and Judah together into 12 tribes, into one nation the way I had intended, and I'm going to make a new covenant with them. And you and I are like, well, what does that have to do with us then? Right? We're not of Israel. We're not from Judah. We're not Jewish. How are we part of this? And here's what the New Testament tells us. This is why this is so critically important. When you come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, when you submit to him and you are made new and the Holy Spirit comes in you, What Jesus tells us is then we are grafted in to the family of Abraham. That we become spiritual descendants of Abraham. We become his ancestors. So if you are here and you are a follower of Christ, this covenant is for you because in Christ you become a descendant of Abraham. And those promises now are true for you. That covenant now includes you. It's what Jesus teaches us. We're grafted in. We keep going. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors. I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, but they didn't remain faithful to my covenant, so I turned my back on them, says the Lord. 
This covenant is not legalistic. You know the problem with legalism in religion? It breeds fear. There are far too many people who are afraid of God. I mean, we all should have a holy fear of the Lord. But there are too many Christians living legalistic lives that are afraid. When something bad happens, they're like, oh, God's punishing me. Right? Something is happening that's causing God to bring calamity on Listen, the new covenant that God brings isn't a legalistic covenant. The old covenant was. The old covenant was a legalistic covenant. It was, it was basically designed so that I am entering into covenant with you, and if you obey me, I'll bring blessings. If you disobey me, I will bring curses. And when people disobeyed God, it did not kill the covenant, but it killed the blessings. That's why there was famine in Israel and war in Israel and hardship in Israel over and over and over again. That's why the Assyrians wiped out the northern tribes and scattered them across the earth. And it's why the Babylonians came and took the two southern tribes of Judah and took them off into captivity. God didn't get outmaneuvered, but he removed his blessing from the people because of their disobedience. But we don't have that. Because this covenant that we enter in with God is not conditional on obedience, right? Blessing isn't just come. I mean, listen, there are blessings from obedience. Don't get me wrong. Of course, blessings come from obedience, but this is not a conditional legalistic covenant. This is the God of the universe saying, I am entering into this with you. And it's not conditional and it's not legalistic. Why? Because it's internal, not external. Get this, verse 10. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel. On that day, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. He says this one isn't legalistic because this one is not external, it's internal. It's in you. When you become a Christian, that isn't something that you just do outwardly. It's something internal. This is why we're really, really careful. This is why we're really, really careful when we talk about what makes somebody a Christian. When you show up at church, that's awesome and I'm thrilled because church is good. When you read your Bible, that's great. You should. When you get baptized, spot on. Right? If you raised your hand or you came forward at an altar call, if you said a sinner's prayer, all good things. Right? If you did your confirmation in front of a room full of people, awesome. You took your first communion, whatever it is, that's great. None of those are bad, but they're external. And they're only really about this new covenant, only really about your relationship with God if they're external things that are happening because of an internal reality. If you're doing those things and hoping that those things will save you, then you're messed up. You're missing the boat. You've missed the point of this. This new covenant I make um, on, that, on that day, I'm going to put in their minds and I'm going to write on their hearts. It's not about them doing the right things. It's about them being changed from the inside. And if you were banking on one of those rituals, then you're still participating in a wrong old covenant. But instead, 
when you surrender to Jesus and you are changed from the inside, that's different. It's written on your heart. It becomes real. Listen, I want you to get baptized. I want you to take communion. I want you to give confirmations and affirmations of your faith. I want you to to do these things. But I want you to do them because inside this is who I am now. And I'm letting it out. Not because I'm hoping that by doing these things, God will let me in. It's not the way it works. And this new covenant is personal. They will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord. Everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already. This is personal. Listen to me. Can I tell you something, what it means when this is personal? It means you don't get to ride on anybody's coattails. It doesn't work that way. You're like, but I was born in the church. I was raised in the church. Great. It's not good enough. I'm glad you were born in the church. Well, I'd prefer you were born in the hospital, but whatever. I'm glad you were raised in the church, but that doesn't make you a Christian. But I'm surrounded. My family are believers. My mom and dad, they believe in Jesus, and I grew up in a home where we believed in Jesus, and we talked about Jesus. That's great, but listen to me. This better be personal. It's about you, not about your family. Not about the country that we live in. Not about the community that you're in. It's about you. Have you decided to follow Jesus? Have you surrendered yourself to Jesus personally? Have you made it your declaration? And when you do, here's the promise. This is, again, this is the capstone. This is the cornerstone. This is why the new covenant is better. Because I will forgive their wickedness. And I will never again remember their sins. This is a statement of forgiveness and a state of remembrance that God says, not only will I forgive their wickedness, I won't even remember it. I've had to apologize to people and ask for forgiveness more times than I care to count. Because, as it turns out, I kind of suck. It happens. So anyway, here's, here's what happens. I will ask people to forgive me, and because people are gracious, they will say yes, and they'll really mean it. But even though they've forgiven me, guess what? They still remember the wrong that I've done. They still know it. I've had people ask me for forgiveness, And I've said, yes, of course, I forgive you. But because I told you I kind of suck, what I do is I take that memory, and as much as I don't want to, I just kind of put it in my back pocket. And then later, I'll get it out and look at it and play with it, right? Because we know that forgiving and forgetting aren't the same. We forgive, and then we try to work past it over time. But what God says here, what God says is, I will forgive their wickedness, And I will never again remember their sins. They will have no part in the way that I think about them, in the way that I interact with them. I won't even remember their sins. Listen, I don't know. There's somebody here. I I don't know who and I don't know what it is. Probably lots of you that are carrying some, some baggage and some garbage from some sin that you've committed. 
and somehow you feel like it's going to keep coming back between you and God, and I just want to say this, it's not there. God doesn't remember it. It is as far away from you as the east is from the west. Whatever it is that you think is between you and God, in Christ, it is not there. And believing it is, that is a lie of the devil. Believing that there's something between you and God when you've come to Christ. Listen, if you haven't come to Christ, then there is a whole truckload of things between you and God. And Christ stands ready to take them all away from you. But once you are in Christ, your sin is separated from you as far as east is from west, and God remembers it no more. That is the covenant that that Christ ushers in, and it's better. It's not external. It's internal. It's not legalistic. It's relational. He writes it on our heart, and he invites us in, and he says, and as a byproduct of you being made new in Christ, right, the Holy Spirit living in you, right, like, like we keep saying, like, we don't need to go to man to mediate between us and God. You don't need me. You don't need to go to a priest. You don't need somebody else to talk to God for you, right, because you can go directly into the throne room, right? You can go directly to where God is because Christ mediates a better covenant for us, Not only that, but as someone who's been made new in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. God actually is in you. Listen, he does not remember your sin. Whatever you're carrying, you got to let it go because God has made you new and he wants you to live in that newness. Ask the praise team to come up. As they do, I just say this last thing. I know they cringe when I say that because they're like, how long do we have to stand up there this time? It'll be fast. Last thing. When God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one obsolete. And it will now, it is now out of date and will soon disappear. And the last thing I'd say about this is, um, listen, sometimes people want to know, and I feel like we can't talk about this chunk in Hebrews without addressing this. They want to know what, what happens to our, to God's chosen people, the Jews, in this time, if they don't know Jesus, if they're still clinging to an old covenant, instead of embracing the new one, are they going to be okay? And I got to say the answer is no. Right? The answer is no. Because as I read this, there's no other way. When God speaks of a new covenant, it means that he made the first one obsolete. That means it doesn't exist. And, and he says, it's now out of date and will soon disappear. And the author was more right than he knew. Uh, actually, that's not true. I mean, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, so God knows everything. But about five years from when he wrote this, Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was raised to the ground and it has never been rebuilt. And if we understand scripture correctly, it won't be rebuilt until the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, um, brings that into motion. Because this is now obsolete. There is one way to be made right. There is one way to have your um, sins forgiven, to have your wickedness forgiven, and to have your sins forgotten completely, and that is through the person of Jesus Christ. And as we sing this last song, I want to invite you. If you don't know Jesus Christ, if you have not given him your sins so that you are forgiven of the wickedness and they are separated from you as far as east is from west, then it's time to make that decision. 
On top of that, I would say this. If there are people in this congregation that have made the decision to follow Christ but are still holding on to something, there's a burden that you're dealing with that you know God wants to free you from, then I would invite you to come forward and be prayed for. Just come on up to the front. Come on up here. I would love to pray for you. There are other men and women in the congregation that will gladly come and pray with you. If there's something you need to let go of, then let's just do that together, right? 